This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. If you had more money than you were expecting, what would you do with it? Now, it's a question state lawmakers will have to figure out again. The latest estimate forecasts that California will have a $31 billion budget surplus next year. We'll go in-depth into where it could be headed. Uh, Buying a home here is, you know, a tough task with high prices and low inventory. And now here come investors to make it even more difficult. And California is now letting all adults get COVID booster shots. So how do public officials get people to actually make the appointments? Passing voting rights legislation has been one of the key goals of Democrats in Congress. Nothing's made it so far. There's a talk show host on a hunger strike until the president signs something. Could be a long time. We will talk to him. Uh, Holidays are coming up. You'll be shopping. The scammers know you're going to be shopping. So we have a list of the top holiday scams to avoid. And then new study finds exercising for five hours a week can reduce your cancer risk. So uh, how do we get people to set aside some more time? As long as you don't have to do it like five hours consecutively. No, 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 it adds up. So over over the week. Okay, just checking. You're just going to get up right now and hit the gym. (laughs) Here he goes. Here I go. Uh, Let's start, though, with uh, state budget surplus. Chris Haney is executive director of the California Budget and Policy Center. Chris, thanks for being with us. So 31 billion bucks. What are we going to do with it? Well, it's the, the first thing to remember is it's $31 billion on a state budget that's about $250 billion overall. So, you know, I think the context is important. It's a lot of money um, for sure. Uh, but the state leaders are going to have a lot of options for what to do with that. Uh, first on their list is going to be the fact that the pandemic obviously isn't over and that for a lot of Californians, there's still a, a lot of challenges in terms of navigating the economic insecurity that's being created. So you're going to see, I think, some more stimulus efforts, uh, some more one-time funding to help address things like local public health crises and help folks who've been harmed by the pandemic in particular, maybe some more small business assistance in some instances. And then I think you'll see some ongoing expenditures over the next few years to try to sustain some of the economic growth at the top of the economy that's actually what's driving this increase in state revenues as well. Are there any rules about where it has to go when something like this happens, or are they pretty much, uh, you know, it's at their discretion? So there are there is one important rule. Uh, back in the late 1970s, a state spending limit was put in place by voters that restricts how much the state's budget in terms of spending, can grow from one year to the next. It's pretty flexible, and so we don't hit it in most years. But when we have a lot of surprising revenue growth that we hadn't expected, uh, we can go over the limit. And if you go over the limit, uh, the Constitution requires that 50% of the funding go to K-12 schools and 50% be rebated to taxpayers. I suspect the way state leaders will get around that is that they will actually provide some sort of stimulus rebate to taxpayers in advance of going over the limit. And there'll be a lot of sort of one-time infrastructure spending and things that doesn't count toward the limit. And so I don't know for sure that they will go over that. But I think K-12 schools and taxpayers are going to benefit one way or the other. Well, uh, to go back to the taxpayer benefit, uh, is it a a situation where people will find a a check in the mail uh, with a rebate? So the way that they did this in this fiscal year, you know, so, so for the budget that they passed back in late June, is they uh, they gave 
a one-time amount of funding to all households that make $75,000 or less. So it was a rebate. It was a rebate targeted to low- and middle-income Californians uh, and wasn't a rebate for folks at the top. This is also a reminder of how the budget really relies on the top income earners because we know that the rich did pretty well during all of this, uh, during the pandemic, and this is helping to reflect that and remind us of it. Yes, exactly. You know, the reason that the state's coffers are so full is that corporations have done quite well uh, during this pandemic, and folks at the very top of the income spectrum have also done quite well. And because we have this progressive tax system, we then pick up a lot of that in extra revenue. But we also have widening income inequality and very deep inequities in the state that have been made worse by the pandemic. And so the good news out of this is that that extra revenue the state has gives state leaders some flexibility to try to make some investments to help the folks who are still trying to make ends meet in a very expensive state. Chris Haney, Executive Director, the California Budget and Policy Center. Investors, investor groups, buying up more and more homes in California and across the country. Data from Redfin shows investors bought a record 18% of homes in the country that sold in the third quarter of this year. Competing against these big money entities is tough for regular people also looking to buy. With us is Jordan Levine, Deputy Chief Economist for the California Association of Realtors. Jordan, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. So it does sound like it's an unfair competition. Uh, you know, uh, the average Joe or Jane trying to buy a home competing against big pocket investors. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, in some ways it, it kind of underscores some of our, our pre-existing conditions, if you will, that we came into this crisis with, which is that we, you know, we haven't been building enough. So housing inventory overall is tight and therefore you know we see all this upward pressure on prices not just from the investors although we also saw that same trend in our uh, annual housing market survey this year we also have a lot of demand just from first-time buyers there's this renewed passion for home ownership and i think all of these things collectively are just keeping the foot on the accelerator from the standpoint of of demand and and prices and all that market competition that we see out there yeah and we mentioned you know big money investors because they have the pockets but they're also paying top dollar and sometimes you know they can come in and pay cash so that just keeps things inflated it's not like they're they're getting around and saying okay i'm gonna snatch this one up for for a great price they're paying what the rest of us are, are paying they just they have more money than the rest of us yeah, the market's very competitive, you know, and I think from the standpoint of sellers out there, you see that if, if you know, you get an offer where there's, uh, you know, cash up front and things like that, and you can close quickly, even if it's the same priced offer, that tends to be relative, relatively more attractive just because there's, you know, fewer, I guess, potential areas where, where the transaction can go wrong. And, and so for the folks who, who have the, the cash to pay up front, it, it certainly is a, a feather in your cap when it comes to a, a competitive market and just making sure yours is, is the offer that gets accepted. We also see, you know, just some of the, the mom and pop investors coming back around and, and we, you know, I'm not sure how Redfin measured investment. I didn't look that closely, but we look at it from both the kind of uh, rental and, and flipper type folks, as well as folks who are just investing in property, whether it's a second home, a vacation home, what have you. And, and both of those things are, are going up. And so in some ways, it's kind of, again, this testament to just the strength of demand for housing in California across the board. So is this a 
an issue uh, in search of a problem? Is this something that's happening? And for some people, it's a problem, but overall, it's not. Or is it a problem? And if so, is there some solution? You know, I, I think it's a problem to the extent that every, you know, listing on the MLS really counts at this point in time with, you know, with this renewed passion for home ownership and making sure that we have enough homes to put these these buyers into. But again, I think that it's it's kind of symptomatic of this deeper underlying, you know, supply issue. In some cases, we saw on the investor side that it was actually the the percentage of, of folks who are buying fixing up and then reselling back into the market has been what's really driving the growth in investor sales rather than kind of buy, hold, and and rent out. And so at least from that standpoint, those, some of those units are finding their way back onto um, the market. But again, I think it, it you know, to me, the, the solution is, is to really, you know, work on the, the pipeline of, of housing so that we get back to some normalcy in terms of housing turnover. Right now, we're in a situation where both investors and I think existing homeowners are in some ways holding on to those homes for dear life because, you know, as a symptom of this chronic undersupply. If we do expect things to slow or if there's a bubble and we expect it to burst or choose your, your term, do some of the flippers out there have a clock running for them so they can get in and get it and sell it before they're left holding the bag? You know, we're not forecasting a big decline in prices. We do see price growth moderating, and we've already seen that through this year. We were growing back in the summer on, on the order of about 30, 35% plus, depending on the, the given market. We're still growing by about 12% on a year-to-year basis, but we see that kind of decelerating down into the single-digit range, hopefully give incomes a chance to catch up as the economy starts to heal. And, and actually, our forecast for 2022 is that um, prices are going to continue to go up just just at a, a much slower clip. Jordan Levine, Deputy Chief Economist for the California Association of Realtors. Coming up a little bit later, scammers are looking to steal your holiday cheer and fun with new and creative ways to take your money. And if you look up in the sky tonight, late tonight, you might get a glimpse of a partial lunar eclipse. It is the longest one in hundreds of years. If you miss it tonight, the next one that long, you'll be dead. <laughs> so there you go. So there you go. That's what you need to know. Yeah, that's what you need to know. Go catch this one. Uh, California's My Turn website is now letting all adults make appointments for COVID vaccine booster shots. Uh, you don't have to fudge it a little bit and say, I'm this age, or I have a condition, or I work here. Yeah. No, just go and click and say, yes, I want one of these. Uh, this comes as the FDA is close to making a decision on whether to authorize boosters for all adults. How many people are actually going to get these, though? Dr. Ann Ramoyne, professor of epidemiology at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. So it seems like everybody in like state and local government has come out and said, hey, Californians, if you want one, you can go and get one. And we're ahead of the feds on this. Is that actually trickling down to people, do you think? I think that the message is just starting to get out. But given that there has been a lot of mixed messaging and and changes in policy over the last several weeks, I think that there is some confusion out there. Bottom line, anyone age 18 or older can get their COVID booster if they're six months out from their second Moderna or Pfizer vaccine or two months past their J&J vaccine series. Why do you think, uh, and this has been a question we've been asking since this pandemic began, 
compared to some other places on this planet, why do we always seem to be so late in doing these things? I mean, Israel, as you know, they've been giving boosters to just about everybody for several months now. Several European countries have been doing it for quite some time. And in this country, while some states like California are kind of getting a head start, if you want to call it that, the <laughs> FDA and the CDC still are wrestling with what language to use. Why are we always behind in this? Well, public health messaging is is clearly very complicated. And I think that the early uh, concerns were that if we started to talk about the need for boosters, then it would dilute the message that vaccines are working. And, and I think that that's a, that's a big uh, misstep here. The vaccines are doing a great job. They're keeping people out of the hospital. They're keeping people from having severe disease. They're keeping people from dying. But the way that these vaccines were administered early on were to get as much immunity into the population as possible in a short period of time to save lives. We had such a high rate of hospitalization, high rate of mortality. We did that, but we did not. um, But as a result, we weren't able to get long lasting protection. You need that third dose to be able to do that. And I think when people have been watching the news or listening to the news have heard Dr. Fauci and others say, well, this was always likely going to be a three dose series. We just didn't know for sure. That's what's happening. People are watching the science unfold in real time uh, and and seeing these changes. Um, but it does make people a little bit confused. Let's say I'm, I'm, you know, a listener out there, though. And I remember that uh, months ago there were doctors and they were saying when the booster conversations were, were getting going and it was going through the, the panels and all. And there were doctors who were easy to find that say, you know what, I don't think boosters are even warranted. The two is fine and your body's going to remember. And, and yeah, there are breakthrough cases and they're going to happen. Has something changed since then are more vaccinated people ending up in hospitals or what warrants them now? Or has the idea of what we're trying to do with them changed and maybe we should be preventing breakthrough cases and infections and that's what a third shot will do for you? Well, the, the third shot is going to do multiple things. So uh, so first of all, we're seeing, we're seeing vaccinated people get infected. Uh, it's, it's something we're seeing a lot of breakthrough cases here in the United States. We did not do a good job of tracking breakthrough infections, but we really saw this in Europe. And now we've seen it anecdotally, basically everybody probably knows somebody who's had a breakthrough infection at this point. Um, but not only are we seeing these breakthrough infections, we are starting to see in particular vulnerable populations, people that are older, people who have underlying conditions, get sick, potentially die. You know, we just saw this happen with Colin Powell, for, for, for an example, of somebody who had had two doses, had not had a third, got, uh, got uh, COVID and unfortunately passed away. So we are seeing these cases of, of breakthrough infections actually resulting in hospitalization and death. Those are going up. And so now the recommendation is let's get those boosters in arms. It, it makes sense to be, um, to, to be somewhat cautious uh, and to, you know, really, really see the need and only recommend it when we see the need. But that need is very clear now. Uh, and I think that that's why the, the vast majority of the scientific community now is saying it's time get those boosters in arms. But you know that there are some people already who are saying, oh, OK, so we'll go and we'll get the third one. But when are we going to be told we need the fourth one? Well, is that really a problem? What if you do need a fourth one? I, I think that the, the bottom line is, is that we're, this is an evolving science, that this is a new virus that we're constantly uh, trying to, to get in front of. And people are now watching that scientific sausage being made, right? It's, a, it's, an, it's an issue of uh, we're, gonna, we're going to be changing recommendations as the science becomes clear. Right now, 
what we know is we need a, a third dose to be able to really shore up that immunity. And it is very possible that we might not need an additional dose. These doses six months out may provide long lasting immunity, but we'll see. And we will change course if we need to change course. I think that the key here is we're doing what we can to, to save lives and also prevent people from dealing with the long-term consequences of, of, of COVID. You know, it's not just about if you get sick, are you going to die? There are these long-term consequences of long COVID that people are really suffering with. And I think that we need to take that into account. I think uh, we've been looking at this as, as alive or dead, and that's really not the only thing that should be going into the calculus of, of getting vaccinated or getting boosted. Dr. Anne Ramoyne, Professor of Epidemiology, UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Voting rights, hot topic in Washington, D.C. Across the country, Senate Republicans recently blocked beginning debates on a voting rights bill named after the late civil rights icon and Congressman John Lewis. Now, that prompted one radio host to take drastic action. Joe Madison, who hosts the Joe Madison Show and Sirius XM Urban View, went on a hunger strike starting last week. He says he'll continue until Congress passes and the president signs voting rights legislation. With us now is Joe Madison. On day 11 of his hunger strike, Joe, can we order you a sandwich? <laughs> no, that's okay. How are you doing? <laughs> you, two, you, two, you, two can, uh, you two can share it. I, you know, people uh, say, well, this is a drastic move, but it, it's really what, what, what the Senate has done is drastic. Uh, these, there have been over uh, 400 voter suppression laws in in 49 states and already i think 13 states have already enacted strict voting uh restriction laws and i just felt that uh someone had to say and step up the game that this is serious and it's not just serious for african americans it's serious for disabled veterans and some of these states you you can't even bring a ballot out to a car uh, in some states, uh, you can't even have uh, mail-in voter registration. You know, I took the position that just like food is essential uh, for uh, the, the survival of life, I, I took the position that our voting rights are essential to the survival of our democracy. What kind of reaction have you gotten? I imagine listeners have, have reached out and had something to say. What about from, you know, the electeds? Oh, you know, most of the reaction has been extremely positive from from all groups of of, of people. And I, and I mean, there are people who say, can I join you? Uh, what can I do? Uh, this is both for me a moral and political protest. Hunger strikes are not new. Uh, one of my mentors, Dick Gregory, and I, we've gone on hunger strikes before. I think the longest I've done it is, was three months, but I'm very serious about this. And each person can protest uh, in their own own way. I just want the Senate to understand as 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 they head off for their their, their Thanksgiving uh, vacation, their Thanksgiving recess, that when they come back, uh, I think it's Chuck Schumer said that voting uh, protection is on the agenda and they need to do it. I made it very clear to the Biden administration. He signed a very important piece of legislation, the infrastructure bill. Uh, but we put that pen 
in his hand. And therefore, you've got to, we have, he, he has to clear the path, and the Senate has to go ahead and at least, right, but, if you do anything, at least, you know, yeah. uh, but you know Joe, take away the filibuster and have a debate. But, Joe, why, why do you think, though, that, uh, and it's admirable that you feel so strongly about this, but why do you think potentially putting your own health in jeopardy is going to make a difference? Because, well, uh, be, well, I don't know why. It's up to them. That's not for me to, to answer, but I'll tell you why I'm doing it. I've got uh, four children. I've got five grandchildren. I've got a great-grandchild. And I'm telling you that be, that 25, 35, 50 years from now, when the historians write about this period, I don't want them to ask, what did I do about it? That's exactly why I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. Uh, there is, and, and I think, in fact, uh, as m- the more attention it gets, people uh, join in the protest in their way. I think we can move the United States Senate uh, to do the right thing. But, you know, the end of the first Reconstruction, what, what, what did the uh, white Southerners go after when they saw their world turned upside down and all of a sudden slaves held public office, went to Congress? Uh, what, did, what did they do? First thing they did, they went after the vote. The first thing they did, and then all hell broke loose. The Klan was organized. There were rifle clubs in South Carolina. Uh, elected officials were assassinated. Well, you know, some of us think that this may be the end of the second Reconstruction, and I'll be damned if I'm going to let my grandchildren uh, uh, have to go through the same thing. And potentially, if we if we don't protect the vote, if we don't protect the vote, this is not, it, should, it shouldn't even be partisan. Then I'm saying to you that democracy is threatened. And I'll tell you what the general, uh, retired General Clapper told me on my show. Uh, uh, national security is threatened. There's nothing our adversaries would love than to see uh, a basic foundation of democracy threatened uh, because some states think that somehow voter fraud is prevalent. And that's the only reason these uh, these legislative bills uh, on the state level were introduced. And there was no fraud. I mean, all the courts have established that point. Joe Madison hosts the Joe Madison Show, Sirius XM Urban View. Joe, thanks for talking to us. Day 11 of his hunger strike. Well, lots of Grinches lurking around this holiday season, both in the real and cyber worlds. Though COVID-19 vaccines have made it widely available, the majority of Americans still intend to do their holiday shopping online rather than in person this year. And they probably don't intend to be caught up in one of the many scams out on the Internet, posing as legitimate deals, but the scammers are getting crafty. Steve McFarland's president and CEO of the Better Business Bureau. Uh, BBB's out with its list, the 12 scams of Christmas. Uh, Steve, thanks for being here. So people can go and read through all 12, but let's just start with, with one of them. What do you think is going to be one of the worst or the most prevalent that, that people can fall for? Well, first, great to be here, guys, and... Uh... The L.A. office gets about 1,100 consumer complaints per day. So you can, ima- you can imagine uh, the variety of things. And about this time of the year, yeah, we produce this naughty list. And the number one item, and probably thanks to COVID, is misleading social media ads for online purchases for goods and services. And uh, what you're seeing on the social uh, media ads, digital ads, free trials, uh, good, and, you, and the goods don't arrive on a lot of these, or they're late. And in some cases, you're charged a 
a monthly fee for unwanted goods or services. And in a lot of these cases, uh, if something even does arrive, it's counterfeit. And they they lure you in, these uh, scammers, with uh, realistic-looking ads that are tempting you with low prices and lots of inventory, like somebody like like some of the other uh, retailers and and online retailers, um, and and they're playing on the shipping crisis and the delays and the the supply chain and so on even more now. But Steve, and now they- after all of this. They've got your personal information and your credit card information. So you need to be really careful for these social media apps. Steve, are there particular items that, that tend to be uh, the ones that scammers really target because they know that people really want bargains on those particular things? Yeah, you know, uh, some of the wish list items, uh, in addition to some of the luxury goods of, you know, designer clothing and jewelry and so on, they're always luring you in, especially around the holiday season and tugging on the uh, – your your uh, your kid chain, I guess, with you know toys like animatronics, uh, like Baby Yoda, uh, and a lot of the uh, knockoffs uh, on on the um, gaming uh, boxes, which are in short supply. So uh, if they say that they have inventory that nobody else does, and that the prices are low for these types of items, you got to be extra careful. You know, so let's say I see something and, and there's my Xbox and it's on this website and the price is good and they have inventory. And I'm like, oh, score, I found it in this corner of the Internet. What do I do to figure out if that's fake? Can I Google this this company or is there some search I can run or find the reviews? And if they have all one stars, well, then there you go. Well, that's that, that's the the ticket. And if there's any one lesson here, it's research. you got to research before you buy. And I know it's tempting. Uh, to take uh, advantage, and, and they're saying if you don't buy now, somebody's going to beat you to it. All the tricks with these really good artists now making realistic ads. So uh, you need to research. You can do this by going to bbb.org. It's our nonprofit free site. You can also look at scamtracker.org for uh, similar types of scams, not only for, for uh, holiday items, but for, for just about everything else. Yes, you're right. Read reviews and cross-search the company name and the phone number on the Internet with a variety of search engines. Use a couple different ones to make sure that the company is legitimate uh, and licensed in the case of services. You know, a couple other things that you might want to do also, if you're if you're looking at uh, the goods and you want to know about the sizes for dresses or, or certain things that might not fit, verify the warranty. What does the warranty say about these goods and the return policy? Is it is can can you return it? And uh, and you might even want to test out the customer service because a lot of these companies don't have customer service, and <laughs> they list an eight hundred number. And even at that, you, you you know, good luck reaching them. Hey Steve, you know you're you're talking about how some of these ads are so you know well designed and they just fool people. But have you ever come across one of these scam ads that are so poorly designed that you are amazed? It's like bad clip art yeah, or something that, from that, Microsoft Word. Yeah, that yeah. people are just, that, <laughs> that you know, and you think you scratch your head and you go, how could people fall? for this yeah let me give you two examples one uh, a guy was uh, in the earlier days of covid was selling incense that would kill the covid virus covid virus in the air Uh and uh (laughs) so it was like are you kidding me and the artwork was terrible there was misspelled words Uh, the other one was a little bit before covid and it's still out there and it was a product called melt away melt away melt away and you take this pill you take your shower head off 
you put the pill in the shower screw thing right there. Then you put the, the shower head back on. You turn on the water, and guess what? The pounds melt away. It's like an, an amazing product. You know, I bought so, that. How'd <laughs> it go? I bought that. So, it didn't work. Yeah. So, yeah, amazing. there's two, two really, like, are you kidding me examples where our staff just shakes their head when people call us telling us that they paid $29 plus shipping for, for these products. And it, either if it did arrive, it doesn't work. And so, you, you know, yeah, there's a couple, are you kidding me type, type situations. And, uh, but you know what? There's all, all kinds of holiday apps where they're luring you to talk to Santa that you got to be careful on because now they've got your in, information. A lot of them contain malware. Uh, you know, you're looking at the, the, the really common one that you guys have both probably seen are, are the lookalike websites, uh, for fake shipping notifications. If you want to get your, your Amazon delivery or, or some other delivery, we need you to verify your payment information here so that we can make sure it arrives on time before the holidays. Yeah, they're well, just going to they're just going to yeah. try and slip those in because let's say I've ordered twenty things, right? And then they send me one saying, "Hey, p- track your package." Oh, this one, yeah, this looks like all the others. Let me just plug yeah. in all my stuff and find it. Yeah, be really careful about those. And you know, another one that that's uh, hopping uh, uh, this uh, about uh, more a little bit more a couple more weeks from now, I would say probably just right after Thanksgiving is fake. Uh, uh, or free gift cards. They're actually fake. Uh, and you pay a discounted price for these gift cards. And, uh, you know, what happens is, is that now you've given them the information. Uh, you think you're buying uh, legitimate Starbucks cards and so on that come uh, delivered to you, but but they're fake. So that's kind of a, a little bit one of a, a newer one happening this year. Uh, and they say that, you know, you've been selected randomly to win a prize with these fake gift cards. Uh, Lucky and you guys. Up giving your your information for shipping the cards to you and you end up getting fleeced. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, Steve McFarlane, President and CEO of Better Business Bureau in Southern California. Steve, thanks. If it's too good to be true, yeah, well, probably, I, love the, yeah. I love the one about the the pill in the shower. Melt away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And now I find out it doesn't work. It's because you didn't put me. two pills. Oh, yeah. that's probably you know you're probably right. Read the label. Yeah, I got to do that. I'll go home and I'll got, I, I got to read the label. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Now... You a little winded over there? No, no, no. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Because, you see, we all know that daily exercise can improve your heart health. Not all of us know that it can help mitigate your chances of developing cancer. He's running in place. Yeah, so far, so good. Yeah, we'll see if we can hold out for the whole segment. Uh, According to a new study by the American Cancer Society and Emory University, 300 minutes of moderate physical activity per week, he started the jumping jacks, which translates to 45 minutes a day, can curb the number of cancer cases in the U.S. by 3%, uh, which translates to, like, thousands of people. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford practices obesity medicine at the Massachusetts General Hospital's Weight Center. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Is uh, my co-host here on the right track by getting moving in the afternoon? Well, you know, I love it. I wish I could run in place, but my voice might go up and down. So I think it's a great idea. You know, I I would be running in place too. I was on a, just a four hour call and I was turning off my camera to kind of run in place so that my Apple watch would count my activity. So I'm all about this. And I'm so excited to, to see this study, which supports a lot of the work that we know that Absolutely. That moderate intensity physical activity does decrease cancer risk across most cancers. But do we know, uh, doctor, whether or not this is just that the people who exercise are just, I don't know, genetically in better shape to begin with? 
No, actually, there are many, many studies, thousands, actually. This is just one of thousands that really support what we've known for a long time, which is why we do encourage activity in individuals. You know, a lot of people think they need to exercise to lose weight when on average, exercise doesn't cause much weight loss. It actually causes relative weight stability. But we do know and we have known for a long time, um, including in some of my research, that actually it reduces cancer risk, even for the most severe cancers. For example, triple negative breast cancer, which is um, the really kind of the worst kind for you to have if you have breast cancer in women. Um, We've seen this, we've known this, and I'm glad to see more and more data support this. Do we know what it is about the exercise that helps? And we mentioned, you know, this isn't like the cure-all. We haven't made some major discovery. They think maybe, what, like 3% of, of common cancers are strongly linked to inactivity. But but like we said at the top, I mean, you shave off a few percent, and that's that's a lot of people when you look at it, you know, from the top down. Yeah, I think, yeah. So 3%, you're like, oh, come on. Are they really doing this story? Um, you're right. Like it may, it may not sound like a lot, but if we look at all of the cancer cases, right, for every single type of cancer, this can be sizable in terms of reduction. Um, what we do know is that it actually affects tumor genesis. And that just means that the development of tumors. And so it can help um, decrease the growth of tumors, which is um, extremely important. Um, and then, you know, this really, I think, helps people to think about, like, don't just start an exercise program, continue it indefinitely, whatever it is. Like, you guys like jumping jacks. That's your thing. Go with it. No, you I know? didn't say I like it. <laughs> I didn't just say said I he was like willing it. to do it. I, I just was willing to do it. I didn't say I right? like well, it. Well, I mean, if that's what you, but you know, it's something that you would at least were willing to do. The thing is, yeah. I always tell my patients for them to find their soulmate workout, right? What is the thing that they would like to do? any day of the week, um, if given the opportunity. For me, it's high intensity interval training. That's my workout personality. That's where I live. For people that know me, that's where they're going to see me doing some type of crazy tuck jump somewhere over something. Um, But for everyone else, that might not quite be where it is. So it's about finding what you like and doing it and doing it most days of your life. And I think that's where we're going to see that major improvement. And I think that that number actually um, is actually going to even be over 3%. Some of the studies show even larger benefit um, when you look at some of the pooled or what we call meta-analyses studies where we put together all of these types of studies to look at the benefit of exercise on cancer. And and to be clear for people, you know, you don't have to buy expensive gym memberships, right? No, you don't need to buy expensive gym memberships. I'm sorry for all the gyms that have immediately written me off for any endorsements. But you don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to buy, a, you know, an expensive gym membership. You know, I'm a huge fan, particularly in the COVID-19 era of working out at home. I use a lot of on-demand platforms that may cost me $100 for the entire year. No gym membership does that. Um, and I think, like I said, it's about finding what you like to do. Yes, you can get a fancy um bike, I won't name which company um, that you could ride on, you can do that. I mean, I do happen to have one of those, but I have so many different things that I do to keep me active. I love strength training. I love step. I love all kinds of things. And it's about finding, you know, what you like and doing it. And obviously, if you're new to activity, making sure you maybe have some supervision so you don't hurt yourself and then decrease your ability to be active moderately. Um, And 
I just want to bring one thing up about moderate. People are like, what does that even mean? What is moderate <laughs> exercise, right? Like, what does that mean? So this means that during the activity, you would be able to talk, but not sing, unless you're like maybe Beyonce, maybe you could talk and sing. Um, but for <laughs> most of us, it would just be able to talk, but not sing if you wanted to during the activity. All right. That's the intensity. Put your music in, see if you can do it, right? Get to yeah. that level. Uh, Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford practices obesity medicine, Massachusetts General Hospital's Weight Center. Dr. Stanford, thanks so much. And, and you know, the really good thing about like the exercise I was just doing during uh, the, is when you stop. <laughs> yes. Well, you still have like 42 minutes to go today. Oh, so. okay. I'll do it during the commercial break. Um, put on Total Eclipse of the Heart or some moon song tonight and look up. It's not super total, but we're getting pretty close. Partial Eclipse of the Moon. Uh, it'll be actually the longest partial eclipse in nearly 600 years. Yeah, I remember the last one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what were you and your friends doing? <laughs> well, you know. In the village. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> According to NASA, the eclipse will last for three hours and 28 minutes. Patrick Hardigan is a professor in the physics and astronomy department at Rice University. Thanks for being with us. So the longest in 600 years, is that right? Well, it's maybe the longest partial eclipse, uh, ah. but most most people probably don't care that much about that. I mean, in terms of how long the eclipses actually last, this one is actually quite typical. Um, we're going to have another one, actually a much better one, I would argue, uh, about six months from now, next May. And that one is three hours and 27 minutes. And in a, another year, we'll have one which is three hours and 40 minutes, which is even longer. Uh, what's different about those is that those are total eclipses, and the one tonight is a partial. I'm not sure why people are making such a big deal about be it being a long partial, um, so I don't think that's probably uh, a reason to go out and look at it necessarily, but it should be a really nice sight, and I do encourage people to go out and look at it. What makes it so long and not just, you know, here's a good 30 minutes or whatever? Uh, one of the reasons why this one is long is, I don't know if you if you'll notice tonight if you go out and look. Uh, but the moon appears like it's a little bit smaller than normal. Uh, it's just because it's kind of, it's somewhat further away than average. And that's uh, some people have called that the mini moon. And so when you have a moon that's uh, a little bit further away than it, than on average, it's going to move a little bit slower. So that means that when it does get in the shadow, it takes longer for it to basically get through. So that's why the eclipse is a little longer. 600 i know i realize you were probably not around but 600 years ago when people experienced this did they know what was going on well i guess it depends upon who you talk to <laughs> <laughs> um I, I think it depends on the culture i mean people did know uh what the reasons for eclipses were uh, back at that time and uh, in fact one of the things that we had to do as astronomers is we had to predict these things both uh, solar as well as as lunar eclipses who should be able to see it tonight and when? Uh, what's your weather like out there in L.A.? Well, it depends where you are. We got some fog and clouds if you're in some spots, but other other places, if you're further enough away, you're probably going to be able to see it. Yeah. Yeah. So it kind of then it will depend upon where you are. Um, the best time, if I get my time zones right at uh, Pacific Standard Time, it should be 1:03 a.m. is kind of when the when the moon is closest to being total. And it'll be uh, immersed about 97% of, uh, of the total at that point. Um, the whole thing lasts about, you know, like you said, about three and a half hours. It should start for you guys at about uh, 20 minutes after 11, something like that. And the whole thing will be done by about a quarter to three. Um, so sometimes around 
so it's kind of a leisurely thing, I would say, you know, for, for your listeners, go out around one in the morning and just have a look up. It should be really easy for you guys to see as long as it's not foggy. It should be high in the sky and it should, should make a really pretty sight, actually. And unlike uh, solar eclipses, there's no uh, medical issue, physical harm done by looking at it, right? Oh, no, no. It's just like looking at the, at the moon up in the sky. And it's not like you need any special equipment or anything. Um, let me tell you a little bit about what it should look like. Um, if once you're, once it starts to go in the shadow, it'll kind of look like a, a little bite has been taken out of the moon. And when you get almost to total, so it'll be at about one, like I say, about one in the morning for you guys. And you look, what you should see is just a little tiny sliver of the moon, a little white sliver kind of in the lower left side, which is left over. And the rest of it will be in the dark shadow of the earth. And you should see some really pretty colors because essentially what you're seeing, if you're on the moon at that point, looking back, what you would see is a brilliant um, red ring around the earth, which is where, where all the atmosphere is. And so you're kind of seeing all of the sunsets and sunrises around the entire planet at that point when you're on the moon. And naturally, because those are red, you end up getting kind of a reddish color. So it'll be a really pretty sight. You should see kind of the the... The little piece which is left over, which is a little sliver of the moon. And then as you go away from that, it should gradually get more and more red. The but colors it, kind of depend upon what the atmosphere is doing. But it sounds like it's a better view if you're on the moon looking at the Earth. Yeah. Okay. Where's, <laughs> where's SpaceX when you need them, right? Yeah, yeah I know. I mean, I've, I've been looking at my mailbox waiting for the invite. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't shown up. I don't know what their problem is. Some people, you know, they, they drag out the, the, the telescopes and the, the, the binoculars or the cameras with the tripods, which is great because then you can get a really good view. Um, do you kind of laugh, though, when, when you get on Twitter or Facebook and a bunch of people are, are posting, like, their cell phone pictures of the moon and you can't really see anything? Although, you know what, if you want to take a picture and preserve that moment and remember it, that's great. But it's like, oh, there's another little dot. Okay, great. Yeah, I mean, I guess my feeling on all of this, and I tell people this also for solar eclipses, because we're going to have another spectacular solar eclipse coming in 2024, which cuts straight across the country, kind of starts in Texas and goes straight north. You know, for those things, the the event is so short-lived. It only lasts for a minute or two. You want to be spending your time looking up and experiencing it as opposed to, you know, taking a picture and posting it on social media or something. Um, it's it, This is really something to be experienced. With lunar eclipses, it's a little different because as you can see here, they last for a long time. So, you know, if you want to play around with your phone or take pictures or whatever. There's time for both. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. Go ahead. Sorry. What what I would suggest though, is that, you know, if this doesn't work out for you for whatever reason, we've got a really, really good one coming in six months. Um, And that'll be a total eclipse. Um, And these things aren't that rare. They kind of happen. You get a lunar eclipse about every six months or so. Um, There are these seasons of eclipses, essentially. Do 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 scientists such as yourself still learn anything from these eclipses, even partial I think the ones? Main, the main thing is uh, kind of I, I look at them as really interesting historical perspectives, and I think I think scientifically probably not, uh, but you know in terms of overall perspective, I certainly over the last few years I have learned more and more because in a way they kind of, um, they're great celestial timekeepers, you know, and you see something like this happen and you can, especially with solar eclipses, you can look back and say, okay, when was the last time that this happened? What was the world like when this happened? So it kind of gives you a real perspective on time 
and and events that way. Um, but in terms of learning something scientifically, mm, I don't think so. Patrick Hardigan, professor in the physics and astronomy, astronomy department at Rice University. Patrick, thanks for talking to us. You're going to get up and watch it? Yeah, I'll, I'll get up. I'm going to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> you can catch the next one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. More in depth tomorrow.